Hey, what's up, Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Seng, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars, January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited, and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was seven years old when I first met Nancy at church. I don't remember the exact moment, but I do know that after I left that meeting, I had big red lip marks on my cheek. That apparently was Nancy's trademark. It was rare that anyone who was even remotely cute left Nancy's presence without red lipstick marks on their face. Nancy was what people would call a force. When she came into the room, the whole place got a lot louder and a lot brighter. Her laugh was more like the Wicked Witch of the West kind of cackle, which would have been cause for medical concern if you didn't know it was her. She was one of the people, or those people who could change the whole atmosphere of a place. If Nancy was in the room, you wanted her to see you because if she did, it meant that for even just a moment, you got to feel important. Like you were the most special person in the room and she had come there just for you. Nancy had this superpower of making people feel loved. And at the same time, she was no saint. Often you'd find her in the center of a story and think, are you allowed to tell that at a church event? But she was southern and a little scary, so there was wiggle room on when to stop her or when to say something wasn't or was appropriate. Nancy and her husband Bob led the college ministry in our church for years, but somehow she also made an appearance every year at youth camp. 
She was technically the dean of women, but to Nancy that meant she'd drive around in a golf cart at all hours of the night pranking students and leaders. And of course, that wasn't her only task. At night, when you were walking back to the cabin, you could hear that cackle echoing through the woods after she water gunned down new camp lovers trying for their first kiss. <laughs> she was serious about the job, but only in the ways that made people love her more for it. I don't know how it happened exactly, but when I was around 11, I caught Nancy's attention. It could have been that she knew how badly I was crushing on her son, and that crush lasted till I was 18. Yikes! But <laughs> it also could have been that she knew my prepubescent self could use a little love. Having red hair is cool as an adult. It is less cool as a teenager. And I honestly don't know how or why I got her attention, but Nancy always made a point to love on me in any room she could find me. That was a gift I didn't know I'd need so bad just a few years later. You see, when my mom left, Nancy was the first one to find me and tell me that life was hard and that I'd have to make a choice in the moment about how I was going to live. I was 14, by the way, and she said I was old enough to decide that God could be trusted and that she'd help me trust him when I felt like I couldn't. Nancy had an open-door policy at her house, like it was literally an open door all the time. The door was never locked, such a danger. Anyway, uh, on the days I'd feel most sad, I'd open that door and I'd hear her say, Come on in, baby! That is how she spoke. And she would hold me on the couch and say, It's just going to hurt for a little bit longer, but your mama loves you, and so do I. Nancy would be the woman who, in the middle of my teenage years, would randomly pick me up and take me shopping for things that only women can take you shopping for. And of course, she had lots of opinions. She didn't have a lot of money herself, but she would often give me some and made sure that I knew I could ask if I needed to. She would regularly talk to me about sex and the scriptures and about how she made some choices in her life that she regretted, but also about how deeply she loved Jesus and how he helped her live a life she didn't know she'd get to live. Nancy was there in all the big moments of my growing up. Church musicals, proms, homecomings, graduation, and post-college debriefs about heartache and theology. Nancy was, to me, Jesus in the flesh. She was family, but not in the biological sense. She was completely imperfect and very inconsistent at times. She definitely cussed a little, and she loved a lot. She was one of many spiritual mothers to me who were a lifeline to both Jesus and who I would become. She's one of the main reasons I stayed in the church when my world fell apart, and she is most definitely one of the reasons I had given my life to loving it. Nancy was, to me, one of the most distinct pictures of what God's family is and was supposed to be like. And my guess is she didn't even know it. We've been in a series called Community, a 10-week exploration of the life-changing question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? In the last few weeks, we've explored what community is and what is meant to do in us and to us. And today, we're going to turn a bit of a corner and enter into part two of the series and talk about the relationships that exist or make up community. And so today, we're going to start by doing so with the church. Now, the church, I know, especially as a pastor, can be a complex topic, mostly because it represents real people and real experiences in our lives. 
But still it is, for the follower of Jesus, an inescapable and life-changing reality that we are called not only to know, but to be. And so we're going to start today by looking at the community that is the church through three movements. Peter in the big moment, a new identity, and our invitation. So let's start with Peter, our first movement. Peter, he's a disciple of Jesus that many of us are familiar with. In fact, many of us know that he began his journey with Jesus on the shores of a sea and ended it with an upside-down crucifixion at the hands of the state. But between those moments lies a story that's important for us to see. And in Matthew chapter 16, the text that was just read, we find a particularly important part of that story on display. Our scene opens with the camera fixed on both Jesus and his disciples, wedged between the Pharisee's scrutiny of him and his own prediction of his death, we find what scholars call a revelatory moment, a defining moment, not only in the life of his disciples, but in the history of the church. Jesus, in a moment of true discipleship and amidst the growing reality of his kingdom, comes to his disciples and asks them this, who do you say that I am? A question that makes sense if you know the journey they've been on. You see, Jesus had been their rabbi. They had seen him do all kinds of things, unimaginable things, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. They had a front row seat to the realities of the kingdom, and yet for the first time, he looks at them and asks them what it all might mean, a moment all disciples of Jesus have to face at one time or another. Now, this question is significant, and there are answers to it equally so. We know from reading it that Peter is the first to answer the question, and he does it, it seems, without hesitation. In a moment of revelation, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this is Peter, sweet Pete, the one who missed the mark a lot, and in this big moment now, is somehow able to see that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had come from God. And it's from this moment that something begins to happen. After this confession, this declaration from Peter, Jesus makes one too. And it's out of that and on Peter's revelation that he says he would build his church. Church isn't a word that had been used yet in the gospel. So for the first time here, we find Jesus using it. And he notably does so as an identity for those who confess Jesus as Lord. This confession would be the threshold, not only for salvation, but for a whole new community, a whole new way to live. And Peter, we see here, would be the one, in theological terms, to get the party started. From this moment on in Peter's life, he's set on a trajectory that included both his confession and the community it formed. And while it sounds neat and tidy, at least to us in this moment, the truth is the journey wasn't always easy, and nor was it perfect. From the scriptures, we know that his journey included many moments of denial and misconceptions, betrayal and the hard knocks and disappointments of leadership. It was filled with a lot of moments of him pulling out his sword when he should have surrendered it and surrendering in moments when he should have been courageous. It included standing on the top of a table at Pentecost, Pentecost declaring the glory of God and then bringing his plate to a table with the Jews because he wanted to sit with those in power. It would have moments of being rebuked publicly and then dying a criminal's death. It was filled with seasons of wonder 
and hardship and boredom and power. Peter spent his life working out what it meant to live both into the confession he made and out of this new identity that was given. And it was both remarkable and rocky. And we can expect the journey to be the same. What we see in Peter's life, and in this moment in particular, is that the journey of discipleship with Jesus and the identity a disciple carries centers around both a confession and a community. The two are interwoven, they're interconnected, they're inescapable and inseparable, and both help us understand our identity as the church. Now, as a professional Christian, I know that for most, understanding and working out this identity is easier said than done. And I recently read this really brilliant quote that I think helps sum up the complexity of this dynamic. It reads this, church is hard. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, I made that up. I thought that would be a big zinger, and it was. But it's true, isn't it? My point is that each of us has a different understanding, different history, a different relationship to this idea of the church. But if we're going to be able to live into this identity that has been given to us, by the way, as a gift, into both the confession and the community God has called us to and to actually know the goodness of it, then we'll have to lean in and revisit what it is and what it actually means for us. So I just want to take a minute. I want to look at this idea of confession and community, and talk about how both shape how we live as the church. So let's start with confession. Now confession, even when I speak it out, I know what's happening in your imaginations. Most of you are drawn to a dark confessional box in the back of a church somewhere. But the confession I'm referring to and the confession we find in our text is a clerical term that's used to declare a formal statement of doctrinal belief. Another way to say this is simply a confession is a statement that names what I believe about God. Now, we all know this, but a confession will shape your way of life. If you confess that soda is bad for you, you will what? You will not drink it, and you will judge others when they do. I'm going to let that one sit. Okay, or if your confession is that there's only one way to say pecan, and there is, you will what? You will have to correct others when they say it differently from you, particularly in the holiday season. <laughs> the point here is that what you believe shapes the reality of your life. It shapes how you live. And Jesus, as we saw in our text, not only affirms this, but confirms that what you believe about him will be the threshold for how you live and who you become. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the God who came to be with us. He is Lord. And that, we read, changed his reality. His confession was, if I can be a little poetic here, the fire that lit the fuse for the community of God. It was the fuel or the frame that activated the movement of an embodied reality of the truth he just declared. And we see that it was and is a precursor for all who will join the kingdom. In my experience, when talking about the church, what is regularly bypassed in the conversation is both the necessity and the potency of one's confession. 
What I mean is, if someone does not confess that Jesus is Lord, like if, I'm not saying in an academic way or in a way that you would agree with me politely, I'm saying if they don't actually confess that Jesus is Lord, believe that he is the Messiah, the King, then the conversation around the church or who we're meant to be will inevitably devolve into more of a political, diluted theology rather than a reality based on a resurrection theology. To those who who don't confess Jesus as Lord, the church will feel like a hopeless, nasal-gazing entity because without that confession, there's no actual hope for anything or anyone to be better than it is now. And look, it doesn't stop there. This continues to play out. If you don't actually believe that Jesus' kingdom is here, that when he came, that's what he inaugurated, then people won't see or go after the realities of the kingdom. They won't go or see or seek healing or deliverance or freedom or life as it could be because they don't actually have eyes to see it. And if someone doesn't believe that in Jesus' coming, he called us, chose us, designed us for life with him and with others, then they won't see the value in bringing others into the story. My point is, If we're going to talk about the identity as the church, then we have to talk about and be honest about the confessions we actually hold. We have to talk about what we actually believe and then allow that, allow those confessions to inform how we live and the expectations that we carry. So many of us want to come, and myself included, want to come to the conversation and critique what the church isn't, but rarely do we consider what is informing that critique. You see, our confession will inevitably shape the embodiment of how we live. And our confession, if it is that Jesus is Lord, will also lead us not just into an individual faith, it's impossible. It will lead us into a communal one. Community, as we've heard for weeks, lives at the heart of the human design. There is something intrinsic in all people that longs to know and be known. And this points to the greater reality at play in and through the life of Jesus. Jesus, as a reminder to all of us, was God in the flesh, God on earth. And as he comes in a body to a people, we see that there is something both prophetic and invitational at play. Jesus in his coming shows us not only what it means to embody what is true, what we actually confess, but through his life and the way he lived it, we also see that it will always involve other people. That out of the life or the work that he carries within him, it will always create and call other people to the same confession because it's good news. Jesus is a God who existed in community before the foundations of the earth, and when he came to earth, that reality that part of his nature was not only on display, but activated in the hearts of, new, uh, hearts of those who knew him and loved him. His nature, we're told, is given to us through our confession. And so from his communal nature, we find a community is born. All of these things bear witness to the central truth that community is at the heart of how God expresses himself to the world. And it's how he is known by others and us. And it's also how we are known. Our confession by its nature and the one it centers around will lead us into life with others. It will give vision and be the threshold for a new identity. Which leads us to our second movement. Now, I need to tell you something. I historically have an embarrassingly severe issue with putting furniture together. 
I feel like that's something you should know about me. I'm not a wildly impatient person, I would say, uh, but I am someone that at some point in the process, particularly if it's long, assumes the directions I was given, which by the way hold the vision for what it's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function, are actually pointless and can be thrown away. Not my most godly trait, but it is one I have embraced. Anyway, if you come to my house, you'll find that the sturdiest pieces of furniture have been put together by other people. And the most wobbly have been built by yours truly. This is not an exaggeration. I have two end tables in my bedroom, both of which have been now nailed together and are simply for display only. <laughs> they are not functioning supports. And that's because I decided that my vision for those tables was both preferred and ultimately superior than that of the one who created it. But what I've come to realize after all these years is that, well, I don't actually know better. I honestly tried to open one of those end tables today. Bad news. <laughs> if I could keep the vision for what it was supposed to be, then I could experience the fullness of what the furniture is meant to do. I could hold a new experience of that furniture in my life. Now, why do I tell you this? I don't know, it worked, you're thinking about some stuff. But mostly, I think, because for most of us, we, when it comes to the vision of the church, we have come at it with our preference or a paradigm at the center. Maybe you haven't thrown away the directions altogether, but maybe it's hidden somewhere or in a drawer somewhere else. And in that, I think we failed to see the church for what it really is and what it's meant to be and what it could be. Throughout the scriptures, and in particular the New Testament, we find Jesus pouring out his vision for this community called the church, and there's a reason he does so. Um, he does so because it matters to him. He does so because it's extremely important in the life of the follower, and he, in his graciousness, does so using pictures. Jesus uses all kinds of metaphors when he's talking about the church all throughout the scriptures. Images that would capture the essence of the heart of the community as well as symbols that would give dimension to the identity the community was meant to take on. These metaphors, they're meant to tell us a story about who the church is and in each one, in case you're thinking idealism isn't going to work for me, in, in each one actually exist holes or threads that when you pull them actually reveal an honest image for what the church is really like. And it helps create an actual picture of both the goodness and the wrestle that exists within it. Which is why it's important for us to look at each of these, particularly through the lens of the human experience. And so I want to take a moment and I want to look at these together. Now, listen, you know this stuff probably. But could you with me enter in again and listen with a new imagination as you consider this moment in your life? Consider where you're at in the community that is the church. All right, so let's start with the first one. One of the most distinct and used metaphors for the church in the scriptures is the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ and to Christians as members of that body, an image he likely adopted from Jesus. Now, this image continues to play out in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters if you want to do a bit more research. But I just want to say a few things about this. This imagery of the church being a body is meant to reveal to us that we are not separate entities, that we do not exist as the whole within ourselves, 
but instead we are part of a whole, part of something that not only cannot exist without its parts, but will cease to be what it was meant to be without them. The body represents that we are all created differently, and yet we all need the differences to make the whole. Do you track it on that math? Great. Some of you are like, no, but bless you. Thank you. Each part is essential. That's the point. Each part is necessary to know our communal identity as well as our individual one. And while you might be tuning me out a little bit at this point because it sounds a little bit like a fifth grade Bible lesson, I do want you to hear me say that this metaphor captures the essentialness of you. Some of you need to hear that today. It captures the essentialness of you and the person sitting next to you. There's a vitality to who you are, an essentialness that can only be expressed this way. This metaphor, beyond giving a polite operation-like image, is meant to thrust the eyes of your heart to the intrinsic value you uniquely carry and the value of the person, again, sitting to your right or to your left. It's meant to give you vision for the space and value not only we occupy as individuals, but the space and value we occupy as a collective community in the world. It's meant to help us see that there is more that we can do when we come together, more than we can do on our own, than we can apart. A body tells the story of both dependence and strength. And when it works together, it can fight for its health, create beauty, and in every way reflect the goodness of its creator. The body is God's picture for how this identity is meant to be lived out. And if we don't get what he's expressing here, we will miss the picture altogether. Now, next, I want to talk about another metaphor that's significantly woven throughout the scriptures, and that is the bride. Have you heard that one before? Yep. Now, this is probably one of the most famous ones, but I don't want to lose you here because you had a weird singles event experience or whatever. Um, I'd love for us again to enter into this with a holy imagination, because this one to me has been speaking so deeply. All throughout the New Testament, we find this image or language around bride or bride of Christ. And this metaphor of bride and groom, it's meant to beckon back to the Genesis story. Capturing the relational dynamic that's meant to exist between God and his people. It's meant to shape and give context for the love and the intimacy we are meant to know through relationship to God, yes, but also with others. And beyond that, it's also meant to give dimension to what is born out of that love. The bride, this imagery, casts onto us the reality of the fidelity and the covenantal love that exists in God's community. The unwavering, unleaving, committed to your best kind of love. And this image shapes how we know what God's love is like, but it also shapes how we display his love to one another. Being a bride, it means you are chosen. It's an identity that declares you are desired and part of something that generates new life. Being a bride dignifies you with the love of the one who has called you his. It's where we know the reality of a commitment that is unfailing and always forgiving. A bride knows the love of her groom, and it's from that that a home is built. And that leads us to our final metaphor today. We're going to look at a family. Now, you've heard some teachings on these, but I just want to say a few things. 
This language of family when it comes to the church can be found all throughout the New Testament. It can be found in Matthew chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 2, among other texts. And in both of these, we see Jesus and Paul framing the church with familial language. And probably more pervasive than the rest, we find, especially from Jesus, this metaphor of the church being a family. But it's here that I want to draw your attention to a few things. Family is one of the most relational words we find when describing the church. It's by definition a network of relationships and obligations bound together by love and commitment. And it is a strong metaphor for Jesus to use when it comes to his people. And that's something we have to pay attention to. Because within this metaphor, we find more than just an idea to hold, but an actual identity to live out. We find a roadmap of what it means to relate to one another and to be related to. Family, different and more distinctly than a bride, isn't something you can choose. We know that, right? It's something you were born into or adopted into. It's something you've inherited. And that great distinguisher sets it apart, both in its beauty and in its burden. Family has always existed as one of the best things on earth, and it has also existed as one of the hardest which means that Jesus' emphasis on family is telling us something about the nature of how we will not only relate to one another, but also about the way we will experience his goodness through it. I don't have a ton of time this morning. In fact, I was thinking i got to cut this whole big section just to be able to tell you the most important things, but I just want to name a few things about this reality of family that I think helps us understand how this actually plays out. Within the realities of a family, you find three key components all the time. Can I just name those for us? People, time, and pain. People, time, and pain. That's the recipe. Yes. And um, you know, as much as I know, that those things are complex realities. People, you know, the weird uncle you have at Thanksgiving that if he wasn't there, you'd actually miss. But then when you're thinking about it, you're like, no. Anyway, those kind of people... Your people change how you relate to the world. They change the responsibilities and the ways that you show up to not only the family, but to the world around you. People are complex, and they never, never are what you want them to be, true or false. True. And so can we just say that people in this dynamic are going to cause some complexity to working out what it means to be family? But... In a family, people are some of the most important things. We are the thing that carries the identity, and so how we work that out really matters. And all of it should be linked and connected to the identity we've been given, the last name we've been given for the good, not just of ourselves, but of the family as a whole. Now, time is a real tricky thing. That thing keeps moving. And some of us stay 29. What a gift. (laughs) But time, we don't think about it very often, right? But it's a massive component even when it comes to the church because time as it keeps moving, yes, it defines characters in the story, but it also pushes us out of the characters we used to be, and that's a hard thing. I'm the baby of my family historically and emotionally. That's how I live. Uh, (laughs) But I was for a long season the baby of my family on both sides, no cousins, just perfect little old me. And then my aunt uh, went and done it. She got pregnant and then had a baby, and that was a real disaster because guess who was no longer the baby? I had a new identity, the older cousin, which is also a disappointment. Anyway, all that to say, when it comes to the family of God, we have to consider how time is changing the part we play. And if we try to hold on to the identities we've had, 
in this window of time, it will actually constrain and not make room for those who are meant to step into the places they're meant to step into. Time adds a weird dynamic to the family because the people you used to be, you no longer are. And if you can't choose the pathway of integration and maturity and death, then you will, again, occupy a space that is not yours. Time deepens families. It creates comfort and goodness in families. But when it's observed as the enemy, as opposed to what it actually is, this transforming agent within us, it actually becomes a roadblock to the work that's meant to be lived out in us. All right, ready? I can't believe I'm doing this without a script. This is a family moment. Gerald told me I could. Now, finally, pain. Uh, you know, uh, time, people, all that, pain. Uh, you know about pain. I just want to say this, and I want to honor. I just was praying so much this morning. I want to honor our community. All of us are carrying pain into this story and this equation. In families, there's just pain. Past, present, future, relational, um, obnoxious, I don't know what the words are, but pain exists within this context. So if we come into this understanding of family without also accepting that there will be pain, then we'll miss again what God has for us. Pain in families are meant to catalyze intimacy, not to withdraw people from it. Pain in a family is meant to call us forward into a deeper union, the death of two to make a new reality out of those things together. And so in a family, when we have people, pain, and time, these, the collision of all these things actually create a lot of chaos and yet at the same time are the catalyst for God's greatest work and his change. So when Jesus talks about the family of God, he's like, hey, look, I understand. I was on the earth. It's quite a mess. And I know that people are part of the equation. I know that time is a factor. And I also know that pain will be a reality for most of you as you work this out. But you are a family. And family stays. And family, no matter how we try to escape it, even if we're at somebody else's Thanksgiving, hoping we won't have to think about Uncle Bob again or whatever it is, still creates within us an ache to know there's some other place I'm meant to be. And that is inescapable. Jesus says this is a family. So these things are going to be here. He's not foolish in his admonition to us. He's wise and helpful in saying it's going to be hard, but it's going to be good. These metaphors outline for us the identity God gives his people. But if that identity doesn't lead to an embodied reality, it means nothing. I'm going to say that one more time. The metaphors outlined here in the text, this identity that God gives us as his people, if it doesn't lead to an embodied reality in our lives, it means nothing. The identity of the church is an invitation to know what it actually means to live out and into the community that is all these things I just said, a body, a bride, and a family. But I have to say this. Here's the truth. It's not just enough to believe it. It's really not. Because most of us know that the idea of being the church won't carry you through the dark night of loss. The idea of the church won't hold you when your child is very sick. It won't hold you financially when you've lost your job, and it won't meet the ache you carry to love and be loved. This idea of the church has to mean and be more than that. And the threshold we all have to cross for this thing to move from being theory to life, it really depends, and hear me when I say this, on you. It depends on you. 
What I mean is you have to choose in on this, to live this. If it's ever going to be and mean what it was always intended to be, if you're ever going to have that experience of life and life to the full, if you're ever going to know what you were meant to know in it and through it. Look, in this sermon, I tried to find a magic formula for you for how this could be compelling enough or beautiful enough or I could click you right in and be stoked on the church and I can't find one. And I'm smart-ish and I've read a lot of people and I asked a lot of people, but here's the deal, there is no magic formula. There's no community group strategy, there's no meal train big enough to reveal the depth of the goodness of this reality. It's a choice that exists solely through experience. To live into what Jesus has said about you, to live a life of faith that says, you said this and so I'm stepping into this and then I have the experience of this. This is the way we live out our confession and it demands faith. Some of us are waiting for a comfy runway, but my goodness, there isn't one. You're waiting for the right time or the right invitation or Gerald to say the right thing in the moments of inspiration, but when I tell you that's not going to happen, it's probably not. The invitation to be the church has been yours since the moment you said Jesus is king. The question of stepping into it is on you. It all starts and ends with you, and I hate that. (laughs) Right? Yikes. Because I had to say it to myself as much as I had to say it to you. I want someone else to do it. I want a program that helps me float in and float out of it where I don't actually feel the weight of it, and yet there's no thing like that. Everything depends on what you decide to do with the invitation, which leads us to our third and final movement. Often when we talk about the church, and I, this is me, let me just confess it to you, we start with others. I love to do this. Talk about what they're not doing. Talk about how they've not showed up. Talk about how they've harmed us or hurt us or how they've ultimately failed us, others. Or, Or maybe we start with what we believe it isn't how it isn't what we expected, or how what it once felt like isn't how it feels anymore. It's not what we remembered it to be. And while some pastors are totally bummed by that, I'm not. Because within these disappointments and lies and deeper ache, that reveals a longing to know the church and its goodness. And that's something God can work with, by the way. You see, no matter your experience or your history with the church of being in it or participating in it, there is an invitation to know and to keep knowing the goodness of God through it always. And hear me when I say that if Jesus is your Lord, he will always be extending that invitation to you. But it's up to you whether you will welcome pain and complexity and cost and lean into what it likely feels like to you at least only a possibility of goodness and not a guarantee, or to reject the invitation and decide that it costs too much or the identity is too hard or you can just sit back and sip your coffee or maybe you just don't want to even address what it demands of you. But if you do that, you will get exactly what you expect, which is nothing. Nothing but hurt and isolation. Confession, your confession is the way back to community. And what you confess about who God is and who he has made you to be, the identity he has given you will ultimately inform what you experience and who you become. Some of us just are having a bit of an identity crisis. Because if we could just remember who God said we were and what it means to be his, then probably how we show up might look a little bit different. 
But look, I know I'm shouting at you quite a bit, and Tyler's gone, so there's a lot of freedom. Uh, (laughs) But I just need to say this to you because it's true, and I do mean it, even though I'm so passionate about it. It's all invitation. The ultimate choice you make is yours. But I do have to tell you that if you make the choice, you're going to have to make it again and again and again and again. You see, living into the identity that is the church and knowing it in other people never happens all at once. It's like family, not to beat the drum, but it is. You can opt out, but you'll always miss out if you don't show up. And even if you think you're better off without it, chances are, even when you're away doing the better thing, something in you will beckon back to who you are. And how you choose to show up in it is yours to decide. Just like Peter, we see that this invitation to be the church is something that has to be worked out over the long haul. It's a lifelong thing, like marriage. It is a body and a family, and it is something that will be great in some seasons and difficult in others. Something that will be shaped by the people in it, the time we've invested, and the pain we've allowed to either catalyze us or paralyze us. And if we want to do this, if we want to know the beauty of it and stay with the family, then I think there are a few essential things we need to note here in this moment as a family together. Because the journey of being and becoming the community of the church, especially as we see it throughout the scriptures, is one that will involve regular encounter with God a decided embrace of our identity and the embodiment of the confession we made. So let me just say a word on each, and then I promise I'm going to land the plane. Is that okay? Honestly, don't know how long we've been going. Uh, I'm going to fix that in the next one. All right. I gave you ease. Y'all ready? Because it's me. Encounter. If we're going to be able to live into our identity as the church, then we have to be honest enough with ourselves and each other to say that we need God to help us. Can we just start there? I know how generic that sounds to you, but it's true. People are out here trying to do community when they don't have communion with God, and I don't even see how that's possible. I'm just not that nice of a person, probably. But listen, we we can't be the church and choose into the church field on goodwill and high hopes. That's not how this works. If we actually want to experience our identity alive, if we actually want to be what God has said we are in terms of the family of God and his presence to other people, if we want to, and some of you are hungry for this, if you want to experience his life in you and through you, then you have to get into his presence. You have to allow his presence to be what shapes and creates the capacity in you to do so. Encounter with God is the only thing that will give us right vision of who we are and how we're to love others. And that's essential if we're going to play the long game of the family of God. Look, only God, we know this, can show you that the person who harmed you was also harmed themselves. Only God can reveal that kind of thing. And in that, he can give compassion a way to see the other person that moves you to actually not objectifying them in your pain, but blessing them in theirs. Only God can give you grace for the chompers and the smackers in your community. Yeah? I mean, that's, I put that there because it's real for me. I hear an amen over here. Only God can give you love for those who have hurt you, gossiped about you, and dropped you. Only God. Encounter is how we keep going. The presence of God is where we find the vision for what he's doing, what is real, and how we move forward and carry his kingdom. 
through encounter and in God's presence, we're reminded of who we are and why it matters that we, became, that we become who God has made us to be. This is our aim, getting into God's presence and letting that change us so that we can change others. Now, I have to warn you that out of that will come the need to embrace that identity, the identity of the church, and that's easier than it sounds. The truth is embracing who God is forming you to be and how that journey involves others is just not an easy task. With the embrace will come the needed discipline of learning to listen to God above the voice of others. It will mean embracing his perspective and vision over yours, which again sounds easy, but in the moment is not. It will involve the regular work of releasing pain and transforming it so that it doesn't get transmitted and honoring your limits as you hold the line between sacrifice and dignity. Embracing your identity as the church will often be the slow work of putting to death your own shame and insecurity and the voice that discredits you from your place in God's family and allowing the welcome of your confession, who God says you are, to actually shape the boldness and the willingness to lead and love others. Embracing your identity as the church is a decided choice to let go of your own agenda and your own expectations and the vision of how things or people should be and more of a surrender to who you might become in light of it. Finally, embody. Everything we're meant to know comes down to what we embody. Embodying our identity as the church is a reflective witness of what we actually believe, and I just think we need to say that more and more. What I believe, I'll live into. It will point to all that I've actually embraced, and for most of us, again, that won't be easy. Embodying this reality means there will be moments of vulnerability where your flesh gets away from you and you say that thing that's just a little too cheeky. It will involve moments of active repentance and forgiveness, both of self and others. It will mean embracing the cost of loving people who are different from you, who value things differently than you do, and who demand in you the death of your own perspective, rights, and privilege. It will be a lifelong journey and one that will, as you embrace it, shape not only your destiny, but I promise you the destinies of all who will come after you. As someone famously and brilliantly said, church is hard. (laughs) But what I know to be true is that it is also beautiful. Embodying our identity catalyzes the realities of the kingdom. It brings hope to the longings of the fatherless. It comforts the sick in their desperation. It gives the lonely a family. And it has the power to change the lives of all who come in contact with it. The embodiment of the church is the answer to the question Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Nancy went to heaven two years ago this December. And I have to be honest in saying that I was scared about going to her funeral. Uh, Not because I'm scared of funerals, because I have to go to those a lot, (laughs) but um, because I was scared that the reality that I had known in her would end with it. That somehow the beauty of what I knew in her and the family I found in her would be lost to her death. When I arrived at that church parking lot, God showed me something that I didn't know to ask him for, but so desperately needed. As I got out of the car and people began to trickle in, It felt like a big fish moment. Has anyone seen that movie? Okay. It's weird, but anyway. uh, It's just like this. Without any ability to see it, to, to dream it, 
um, and this is what happens at Big Fish, all these characters of my life began to fill in one place. And I could see the gift that I had known in Nancy wasn't just in Nancy alone. You see, there was Miss Gentry, I'm not joking, screaming across the parking lot, calling me Hoozy Mama, which is what she's called me since I was seven years old, and somehow that's appropriate in the right context. I could see Diane employing her husband and son to bring in, and I'm not joking about this because everyone's Southern, 10 pounds of chicken spaghetti. And there was Mr. Keel, of course, crying, but also moving chairs and being the first to hug everyone who came into the door. These are just a few characters from that story. In a moment, amidst the shattering loss of one relationship, I found the mosaic that was the whole community. Nancy was a witness to me of the community I lived in, and it was real and imperfect and alive with the realities of the kingdom. For 30 years, these people grieved with one another, but not without hope. They loved each other through loss and divorce and sin and brokenness. They were the church. Nancy was one of many who in my community decided to live into the reality of their confession to live into the identity as the church and as a family in the most unwavering way. And you need to know that that commitment changed my whole life. It healed me, it rescued me, it called me to a love that I could not have perceived any other way. It revealed to me who God really was and how his kingdom really works. And it gave me a taste of something that nothing would ever compare to. Everything good in family and in a community comes over time, comes through sticking it out, comes when we show up and say yes to who we are and who we could be in small ways and for small people like me. But the effect, the impact changes the reality of the world we live in. The community that is the church is something we can either sit on the sidelines and observe. It's something we can suggest changes or improvements to, but until we lean in, we never know the actual power of the gift and what it's meant to do in our lives. The call for us today is not to be convinced of what we get out of it. It is to trust the God who transforms us with his love and allows us to join him in knowing that love more deeply with and through other people. The story of my life, of my love for the church, it's personal. And that's what it always is. I cannot guarantee you a journey free from pain or conflict or disappointment. In fact, I can assure you there will be some. But what I can promise you is that if you'll say yes, if you'll lean in, if you'll risk for some of you saying yes, then you will find Jesus in it. And he is worth it all.